Thanks for coming to today's Spotlight with Catherine Collins. Happy to have her here today. Uh, Catherine you. produced uh, the comic Neil the Horse uh, under the name Arn Zaba. Sab not Zet, not Zet. Sa Saba. Saba. Yes, that Sorry. was my name when I thought I was a boy. <laughs> and uh, I discovered my mistake at some point and changed it. But this is what I've been calling the Neil the Horse phone book because it's so huge. I had no idea it was going to be this big. When Andy sent me a copy, to, you know, my, first, my first look at it, I just immediately started putting it down on surfaces and walking away and looking at it from a distance because I thought, that's my big book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should weigh it, I guess. <laughs> so we'll just anyway. give some background. Uh, Neil started as a comic strip in 1975. It was syndicated in Canadian weekly newspapers. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, in 1982, Neil and his friends Soapy and Mamzelle Poupe began starring in their own comic, which ran for 15 issues. Uh, Neil the Horse Comics and Stories is often referred to as the world's first and the last all-singing and dancing comic book. Yeah, that's, that's my line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> often referred to by Catherine let, let me and just, other people. Let me explain that uh, not every story, but most stories, the characters would stop and sing a song, just like in, you know, in, in a musical comedy. And uh, then I, no, there's songs that I've written, and, I, and then we'd print the sheet music in the back of the comic book. So the, the, the slogan for the comic book was making the world safe for musical comedy. Hmm. So there. <laughs> it's a very interesting format in that it was, uh, it was more like a British children's annual. It contained uh, old, uh, old reprints of the newspaper strip. It contained uh, cut-out paper dolls uh, with fashions for Poupe. It contained a letters page written in character. And as Catherine mentioned, it contained uh, sheet music for uh, a lot of the original songs that she wrote to go with new stories. And uh, there were also a quite a few text stories with the characters, with illustrations. So, there were, you know, I left no format untouched. <laughs> so, so the comic ended in 1988, and uh, after a proposed uh, stage show, graphic novel, and animated cartoon didn't get off the ground, uh, Neil and Arne as well both went away as uh, Arne uh, transitioned into Catherine Collins we have before us today. And as Catherine mentioned, this weekend, uh, Conundrum Press is releasing The Collected Neil the Horse, first time the character has been in print in almost 30 years. That's right. Amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and tonight, Catherine will be inducted into the Doug Wright Awards Giants of the North uh, Canadian Cartoonist Hall of Fame. So please welcome Catherine Collins. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so for those who don't know... Um, Neil the Horse, the comic, focused on three characters mostly. There was Neil the Horse, who was kind of a spindly-legged doofus character who uh, loves bananas with an, with an obsession yeah. for bananas. Yeah. Uh, there was Soapy, the kind of uh, cynical, he's a back alley, world-wise world back alley cigar-smoking cat, and Mamzelle Poupe, sort of very sexy, large-breasted wooden doll, uh, who was looking for love and Broadway fame. Uh, that's kind of an odd combination for a comic. Can you? Tell us a bit about uh, why those characters, uh, why and, those three characters? and how you developed them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I, what I didn't do was sit down and d you know, decide, I'm going to create a character that does this. What, I, what was happening to me, this is back in 19, 1974, I guess, I guess it was, that um, I knew I wanted to find the right characters to create that, so I could do stories of of unlimited scope, meaning they could, so the characters could go anywhere, do anything. The, the way, my model for that was the, the Disney characters in, the, in Carl Barks' Donald Duck, and to some extent, 
Mickey Mouse by Floyd Gonfredson, which I had just discovered at that point. So they had to be, they had to have a sort of plausible reason, plausible within the cartoon world, plausible reason to, to go places and, and do things. So, I, but I just, I tried a number of different character concepts and drew some pages of comics and, and uh, I wasn't satisfied. And then one day I was walking home from work I was in Deep Cove, North Vancouver, and uh, I was just within sight of, of my little cottage, and suddenly it just struck me. You know, I was, I'd been thinking and thinking and planning and logicking it out, and, and suddenly it just came, and I always see, see it as a big thought balloon over my head. And what I saw in that thought balloon was Neil, the, the horse, and Soapy, the cat. Poupé um, was not there yet. Um, but their whole, their appearance, the, the way they acted, the, or the way they act, um, their relationship with each other and so forth, it was just all there in a split second. So uh, I guess you have to call that inspiration. So anyway, so I started doing stories with them and syndicating it, self-syndicating, to small-town weekly newspapers. And uh, then after about a year and a half of doing that, I decided to move out to, to Toronto from Vancouver. And... Uh, so then when I got here, um, I quickly realized that trying to do newspaper strips was a losing proposition because the, the newspaper strip is a dying art. And uh, it was very difficult to get anybody very interested. But I, I persevered on the weekly strips for, I think it was at least three years. I'm not sure I can remember. Um, but Poupé still did not exist in, until uh, in, in, the, in the strips... Um, she suddenly appeared, and I, I think I guess the very first time that she appeared, she was just a one-off character. For for Neil saw this this what was, it, what was a doll. She was prepared as a doll. Um, Neil saw her crying with a broken heart, and he collected all the broken hearts that were in the air and lying around, and Scotch taped them all back together. And a horse doing Scotch tape is something to see, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Um, and that she gave, he, he gave the mended hearts back to her again, hoping that would help. So she just keep, kept coming in uh, as a, I guess I could say, as a device to, to expand the range of what the characters would talk about. Because neither Neil nor Soapy would be, you know, searching for love. Um, Neil, Neil's too young and, <laughs> and stupid, and, and uh, Soapy's been around and done it all already. Um, so, it was handy, hand, handy for, for me to have a character who could talk about that type of, of issue. And as I went along further, <clears throat> she just kept coming back. And uh, she, I, could, I couldn't make her go away. So, um, then I realized she was also handy because neither Neil nor Soapy have hands. So, it's very hard for the characters to pick something up and look at it or do something, write something down. So it was handy to have another character who, who could do things like that. So th that was one of the reasons that I, that I put her in, is because she has hands. So anyway, but by the time I've, I've started doing comic book stories, mostly because people asked me to, um, she was a permanent member of the, of the trio, and so she remains to this day. So there. Okay. <laughs>
So as we mentioned earlier, uh, music was a big part of the comic, aside from the sheet music. Uh, dancing was a big part of the comic. There would be pages and pages of characters just, just dancing. Uh, you did a five-part uh, musical radio play for, for, for CBC based on Neil and his friends. You did a, an audio cassette tape of songs, all written by you. Um, why did you incorporate Song of Dance into why, the comic? Why, why did I do that? Why and, and, and how do you think it changed the way you might have done comics otherwise? Why did I do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know in a, in a sense. But looking back, I can see that, you know, I was drawing and writing from a very early age, like before I was 10, and, and I was always putting songs in. The characters would stop and sing. And I, I did a, a picture book, you know, text and pictures book, and that same thing happened. And uh, then I was doing a, a comic strip in my university newspaper in, at UBC, and the characters finally insisted on singing. So it just seemed to be something I couldn't do without. Um, and partly it was a way for me to show off my songs, even though sheet music is a pretty mute medium. But um, uh, nonetheless, it was better than, than poking the eye. And uh, so um, then it just became, a, without my meaning to, it became sort of a signature or hallmark of, of my work. And... Uh, and people began really reacting positively. So that was fine with me. I loved doing it. And, and uh, I just never looked back. It, and you had no training as a songwriter, right? Yeah. I have no training with, as anything. No. No. I've, ne I've never taken any lessons in anything. I, I'm totally self-taught. <clears throat> and I never do anything written or drawn or anything if I don't already know it's going to be used. And, and then I just sit down and do it. No, no training, no preparation. I don't sketch I, I don't, I, I don't, you know, sort of plan things out in advance. I just make it all up as I go along. And music's very important to you personally, though. Why? Why is that? Um, <clears throat> well, I know most people hate music, but uh, <laughs> you know, just it's, why is it? Why do I like music? Well, why? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I like music? No, fair enough. Yeah, I, I my my parents were fans of of the swing bands of the 30s, because that was their era of being young. And so I heard, you know, millions of hours of, of swing jazz and Broadway shows and so on. So I just absorbed all that through my, through my skin. And uh, to this day, swing is my favorite form of music. Mm -hmm. So I just had to participate. I'm not going to let swing music in general exist without, without participating. Mm -hmm. I went in. So <laughs> you danced for a few years, I think you told me, right? You well, uh, sort of. Um, yeah. You took dancing. I took dance classes in, here in Toronto. I think I'm in Toronto now. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to know sometimes. Um, yeah, in the 80s, when I was already uh, in my 30s, I can't remember exactly how old I was when I started, but I had no illusions I was going to perform, but it was a... It was a professional dance school you know, for people, for young people who were aspiring to, to be jazz dancers, doing jazz dancers, which is sort of almost the same thing as Broadway show dance. Um, so I took the first year level uh, dance classes every year for eight years. And the, the school just let me kept, keep coming. And even if I wanted to become professional or even graduate to the second year level, I couldn't have done it. So I can't claim that I was a good dancer at all, but I just enjoyed it so much. And it taught me a lot about 
dance so that when I started to draw dancers in my stories um, and, and choreography, um, then I had an idea what they were doing. You know, if they twisted in a certain way or kicked their legs in a certain way, I knew how it felt. I knew what it was about. That really helped me when I was drawing the dancing. And when I drew the dancing, it was real choreography that I, that I drew out. I didn't just draw people kicking and flailing like in so many films, uh, animated and live action. Nobody's really dancing. You just see snippets of people flailing their limbs around. So, so um, it really helped me. And, and I discovered that one of the wonderful things about dance, doing dance, is that it's an equally 50-50 blend of, of your mind thinking about what you're doing and your body having to do it. And, and of course, then you start to get muscle memory and, you, you know, you, when you're... When you're um, brain says, well, do, do this certain thing, your body starts to know how to do it. And uh, I loved that combination. You, know, you couldn't stop thinking, but you were using you know, your, your body in a very, very, very energetic way. So when I, I moved away from Toronto in 1989, and I tried to find, I went to London first, um, London, UK. Um, and I tried to find some dance school that would let me do the same thing, but I couldn't find one. So then I started doing aerobics, which was the next best thing. At least I was still moving in the same ways. So, yeah, I, I guess I should go back and say that in about 1979 or, or 1980, I rather belatedly discovered Fred Astaire. I had never watched him before. So there I was in my uh, early 30s, I guess, and I just went completely bonkers for, 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 for Fred. I fell in love. What's the matter with this thing? Um, <laughs> it's a word from our sponsor. Right? Oh, <laughs> so um, oh, here's Andy. Um, um, I'm oh yeah, so I just was completely bowled over by by Fred, and I began to understand dance in a much more detailed way. And that's what prompted me to take the classes. So dance suddenly became really important to me, important to my life. And I did do the radio musical comedy for CBC. I wrote it and produced it and edited it and acted as Neil. Yo, I'm Neil the horse, hello. <laughs> and um, then it, it was just inevitable it would seep into the comics. I did a two-part uh, Fred Astaire tribute story in Neil the Horse, and you just talked about how you uh, leaned on your own experience dancing to draw uh, choreography, but the way you drew it in that issue was is an especially interesting story. Oh, well, yes. But it, there's only one story where I actually drew Fred Astaire dancing with, with Mademoiselle Poupée. Um, and uh, by that time, I was deeply into studying my boy Fred, and uh, I had this funny little device called a, a th thermal... Well, it colloquially known as a, as a thermal printer, which you would heat up, or you would hook up to, to a television set or whatever. And I, I hook it up to a VHS tape player, because that's what we had back then. And I, I went through all, all of Fred's dances, I don't know, maybe not all of them, but a whole bunch of them, and just printed one still image after another, um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And, and, and then I sort of pasted them up on large sheets so that I could see them as a sequence. And what I was doing that for was to study his, his movements, 
to see how it looked when he did such and such, and also what 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 movements did he favor? Because what I was working on was to create my own choreography, but for Fred Astaire with his kind of of, of movement, and, and dancing with Poupet. So the the uh, Fred Astaire dancing and the other dancing in here is all very uh, authentic choreography and, and, and dance moves. But uh, that was the only way I was ever going to get to choreograph for Fred. So, <laughs> so uh, that's what I did. <laughs> so um, along with being a cartoonist, you worked for several years with, with uh, CBC Radio doing... Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, I did it for about... Talks about comics on, on Morningside. Uh, you did a five-part documentary on the history of comics where you looked back on uh, some of the great cartoonists that you had loved as a child, Milton, Milton well, Kniff. Well, uh, well, actually, it was a slightly different thing. I did mm -hmm. the, the, the five-part documentary, so-called. Mm -hmm. um, it was on the Ideas series. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was doing, um, I was investigating the what at that point was the intractable... Um, low esteem that which our societies have, in which our societies have, have held comics. You know, they were just regarded as garbage, no matter who did them, no matter what what they did. So I set out to answer the question, if I could, is is there something inherently garbagey about comics? Is there something inherently limiting that makes it impossible to do serious work? Not necessarily, not necessarily sober-faced work, but you know, serious. Um, I just I, and I went around the United States and Canada, um, interviewing all of my favorite great old cartoonists who, luckily, were still alive at that time. Uh, so inter I interviewed Milton Kniff and Harold Foster and Floyd Godfredson and um, one of my favorites, Russ Manning, and a bunch of others. Um, and that became part of the of the series. And then I then I wrote the questions that I had in my own mind and 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 my own answers. But then I would drop in these clips of of the the great cartoonists uh, speculating on my questions. So as you said, uh, you felt that a lot of those cartoonists were great great art. Why did they influence you so much, and how did they affect your own work? The old old cart mm -hmm. old time cartoonists, the, old, the, old, the older newspaper cartoonists. Yeah, well, to this day, my favorite comics in the world, besides Karl Barks, apart apart from Karl Barks, um, are the old newspaper strips from starting from the day that newspaper strips were invented in in 1897 with the Cats and Jammer Kids, who are still around, um, and up up through the late late uh, 90s into the early 20th century and I guess up to up to about 1925 I just almost uncritically love all of the comic strips <laughs> from that period um, and, and then even then the syndicates and the newspapers started to interfere it started to shrink the strips and, and treat them just as a, as a commodity and giving giving the uh, cartoonists less and less leeway to make the cartoons look like what they wanted and, and containing the content they wanted. But I still love the strips right up to about 1960. And I've got this enormous collection, not only of clipped out uh, Sunday strips, Sunday pages uh, from, from the early years, but also every 
book I can lay my hands on, which these days is a lot, a um, book of, of reprints of, of old strips. So I'm not sure what the question was now. Why did you admire these artists so much, and how did oh. they influence your work? Well, they influenced my work, to do this backwards, um, just by reading all of them and wanting to, to be as loose-limbed and... and and sort of crazy as many of them, many of them were, <laughs> which was wonderful. Um, so, so it was that art form, the the uh, the newspaper strip, especially the big Sunday pages, it made me think, oh, that's the size that comics ought to be. Never mind this little size. That's that's one reason why this book is slightly big in in measurement, because I I drew I drew the comics for the comic books, which were like tiny little paper napkins, and um, I always thought if I ever got a reprint that we would reprint it bigger. Well, as Andy knows, I don't know if he's still here, uh, but uh, Andy's the publisher from Conundrum Press. Yeah, so as, as Andy knows, I, I kept trying to get the book even bigger. I wanted it 9 by 12 or 11 by 17 or, or I don't know what, you know, something, something huge. And I still intend, if I get to do any more comics, I still intend to do some great big pages. So it's just the aesthetics of, of those old strips. And so I guess that's how they influenced me. Uh, also, they were very uh, permissive. They were allowed to do anything, you know, lo lots of cartoon violence and, and, and um, socially undesirable behavior, and a lot of drinking and smoking and carrying on. So that seemed to me that, well, that's better than... High and Lois, or something like that, <laughs> you know, which is like a nice little suburban couple. Um, yeah, I've always, I've always been an admirer of and practitioner of um, behavior uh, outside the bounds of the law and uh, and 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 social norms. I'll do anything I feel like, no matter what it is, no matter what anybody says. So I look for laws to break. And the characters were in the early strips were so uh, raffish, you know, and, and uh, getting in all kinds of trouble with the law, and, and, but eventually prevailing, which is my, my, my model for how to behave in life. So anyway, <laughs> that sort of answered it. Yes. So Neil started as a newspaper strip, but it really gelled as a, as a comic, and as we talked about earlier... Uh, it was it was a compendium of so many different things, uh, you know, old strips, text pieces, new pieces, sheet music. How did you settle on that on that format? And can you tell us a bit about the process of uh, putting one of those issues together? Well, I would say I didn't settle on that format. <laughs> I, I I failed to settle on a format. <laughs> I just I just always when I thought of a story, I saw it in a certain way. If it was a text story or a comic story. And even then, if it was a say it was a text story, then a, is there a lot of text each, on each page, or a little bit, and and how how big were the pictures on the page, and so forth. But it always came to me like that, you know, I'm gonna, like the story Neil the Horse in Old New France, which is old old uh, French Canada. As soon as I thought of the story, I knew that it had to be fairly heavy with text, and then with the illustrations. So, they, so I just followed the dictates of my imagination, because I think that. Uh, the best way to, to be an artist in, in any medium is just do what you f feel like, do what you see, do, 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 do what's there in front of you that you want to do, and never mind what anybody thinks. And so it never occurred to me that I wouldn't 
put stuff of any description into the into the comic. So when it came to do issue by issue, um, most of the time there was a fairly heavy component of older work that I had done that had never been seen or almost never it had been published in very small places and uh, so I had a lot I had a lot to draw on because I'm a very slow cartoonist I'm the world's slowest actually and um, so I would do as many new, you know, new pages as I could for an issue but I was re really glad I had old work that I could, <laughs> I could put in as well and that meant that everything that I'd done that I thought was important eventually was was published so I, yeah, I like I, I love those ch old children's annuals. Well, I, I grew up with Rupert the Bear, and um, they had uh, really eccentric stuff. Uh, the, the guy um, Alfred Bestall, who wrote and and, and drew um, Rupert, um, he was a very active member of the of the British Origami Society. So there were all these little origami projects in the in the Rupert the Bear books, and you know, coloring pages and uh, games, you know, various kinds. So, so my influences were not just comic books, not, not North American comic books, and certainly not superheroes. Oh, my God. I, I, have, I have nothing good to say about superheroes. End of topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what would the process be like in, in, in putting together an issue for you? Well, it's like I said, I would try to do as many new pages as I could. Mm -hmm. But I would see, you know, I could see ahead of time how, how far I could go, how many mm -hmm. I, could, I could do. So then I would rummage through the, the archives and say, oh, I've always wanted to reprint this or that. Um, so it just kind of added up. It's just, you know, it's like pouring water into a bucket. Eventually it's full. But I didn't, uh, I never tried to meet the deadlines. My poor publisher, Denny, she, she never knew when an issue was going to come. And it, was, it came when I was good and ready. I just I don't believe in deadlines. I believe in doing the work, you know, making it the way it should look. And so, so what it meant was for the course of those fifteen issues, it meant that I was working all the time. I was uh, I was just um, you know finish an issue and immediately start on the next issue. Uh, so that was great. I mean, it was just so exhilarating to to have somebody publishing it all. So yeah, I can't say any more than that about the, the, the process of putting an issue together. All right. So um, you started your transition to sort of at the, the end of the first phase of your career, uh, and you've been spending some more time around uh, the comics industry recently. Have there been any challenges that you faced as a trans woman in the industry, and do you see any change between then and now? Well, that's a big, a big subject. Mm -hmm. um, we have time. <coughs> okay, everybody settle down now. <laughs> We're going to be here a long time. <laughs> um, well, let me see. Uh, when when my cartoon work stopped in, in 1993, it was because nobody would publish me. Nobody would even answer my phone calls. Nobody, nobody would even think about dealing with me. And this is just after like, two months. It started just two months after I made it public that I was going to transition. I went for the last time to the San Diego Convention and uh, arrived there as Catherine. But he got a lot of negative reaction, from, especially from the guys, the superhero guys especially. They thought they, it was best for all concerned to take it upon themselves to be rude and nasty to me. But um, in general, that's, that's what you expect when, you, when you're a transsexual. You, you have to know 
that you're going to get unbelievably negative reactions from a whole lot of people. And two members of my family just cut me right off. And uh, I, I lost quite a few friends who just, I never saw them or heard from them ever again. And um, in society in general, especially back then, early 90s, you know, society had no room for a transsexual and didn't feel any need to adjust. And even the New York Times had a, an, read, I read an article in it where somebody, it wasn't about trans issues at all, but somebody was talking about whatever it was and used the expression as crazy as a transsexual. So I wrote to the New York Times and they printed my letter saying, I'm sorry, but you can't say that anymore. You know, we're, we're, we, transsexuals are people who are just trying to be ourselves and, and trying to have uh, whatever, you know, the idea of a normal, normal life. I said, we, want to, we just want to be citizens along with everybody else. So that, but that shows where society was at when the New York Times could casually print and a, a sentence that said as crazy as a transsexual. <clears throat> but obviously it's changed a, a whole lot for people, in, uh, for trans people in, in the last 25 years. It's never going to be perfect, probably, especially in the States, as you probably have noticed. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of negativity towards transsexuals. And trans women, such as myself, regularly get murdered in the States, usually about two a month. And uh, it's always the same. You know, they, if somebody finds the body and it's been assaulted grievously. So, so I'm encouraged that it's coming out at all, you know, things are improving. But when, anytime something like that improves, there's a, also a very negative reaction. So I don't know, in terms of my own work, whether it was because of, of my transition that I couldn't get published anymore. It was pretty remarkable. I went from being friends with all sorts of people, lots of publishers and others, to being completely incommunicado, like nobody would, nobody wanted to even, you know, speak to me. Um, so, was it because of my transition? I don't know, because I found out later that that apparently was a very bad time for the comics industry in general. Apparently there was a lot of retrenchment, a lot of smaller companies going out of business, a lot of, even the big companies, the superhero companies, were having to cut how many issues they published and that sort of thing. So, was it that, or was it that my work was just so, so uncommercial? I mean, singing and dancing animals with sheet music is not exactly what the public is looking for. And I, you know, I never fooled myself about that. So, or was, it, or was it transphobia? I don't know. But for 25 years, I was out in the cold. I just had no career. And uh, so I reacted in such a way as to try to avoid as much pain as possible. Um, so I just I stopped even thinking about cartoons. I put all my collection in a storage locker, and I dismantled my art studio, and uh, just went on to do other things. <coughs> Excuse me. I was lucky. I had a. I had just at that time. I had just met this woman who became my, as I say, my lesbian husband, and uh, <coughs> She, you know, so that took up a lot of my time and attention and made life gratifying in another, in a different way. Unfortunately, then she, she died of cancer, um, which also took all my money. <laughs> and I'm completely broke. And I've never had a partner since because, as I've discovered, most lesbians of my age absolutely won't even be in the same room as a transsexual. 
So I'm lonely, but uh, at least, yeah, in, in uh, 2013, I suddenly started getting these emails. I don't, I don't remember who wrote them now, but uh, somebody back east here in Toronto wanted something, wanted me to contact them. But I was so used to, to hiding from the comics world that I just, I wouldn't answer the emails. I, you know, I didn't know what it was about. And I thought it was probably going to be bad news. So I just didn't, didn't want to answer. So finally, somebody who I knew, who also knew, knew these people, he sent me an email. It's Robin McConnell sent me an email saying, for God's sake, answer the emails. They're trying to give you an award. <laughs> and, and, and my first reaction was, I don't want an award. I don't want to have anything to do with comics. And so I was going to write back an email that said, fuck off. <laughs> but then somebody else, I don't remember who, begged me not to do that. So... So I, I finally communicated with them, and it was not the, not the award-giving body who's giving me an award this evening, but the other Hall of Fame in Canada, the other Comics Hall of Fame. Canada has so many famous cartoonists, and we need two different competing Halls of Fame. We can just call fame. the other Hall of Fame, that's fine. It's the, it's the Joe Schuster Awards. <laughs> so I, by, the, by that time, by the time I finally decided I should communicate with them and you know, found out they were giving me an award, and I was really grateful. I changed my whole attitude. But by that time, it was too late for me to come out to to Toronto, and I, I was in the middle of a period of really bad health too. Um, so I sent them a, a video, which I made uh, at home, and, and, uh, and you know, my thank you speech. And I'm very grateful to those people, and I'm going to thank them again tonight at the awards ceremony. So, so that that was wonderful, and. Um, and then a number of people, including Conan, uh, who has his own magazine, uh, you know, p people started offering to, to publish me. Well, I wasn't ready for that, because I haven't drawn a picture since 1993 or something. Um, so it took me a long time to even begin to, to get ready to do anything new. And, and, and also, I was going through my worst period of ill health at that time. I, I spent almost the entirety of 2015 sick in bed with a high fever that never went away. Um, so, um, but, it, but you know, it, it began to become apparent that these people in eastern Canada, mostly Toronto area, remembered me and, and had seen, seen my work and liked it and that they, uh, you know, they wanted to continue to sort of encourage me to, to be a cartoonist again. At that point, I was working as a social worker for people with, with mental disabilities, which I really enjoyed. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so I started getting these, these offers, but I was too sick at the time to do anything about it. And then Andy Brown of Conundrum Press, who's the publisher of my phone book, um, he said he would like to publish this, you know, the collection of all my old, old work. And he's also said since then he'd be happy to publish anything else I, I ever do. So I'm sending him all my grocery lists. <laughs> what do you want to do next? What would you like to do? Well, um, I, had a, I had a, well, at that time I referred to as a graphic novel, but it's too short to be a graphic novel. Uh, but I have this unfinished project. It was, it was almost entirely 
penciled. By the time I just gave up, and you know that that was the project I was trying to peddle when when nobody would talk to me. So I've got this. Well, if it's a graphic novel, it's a short graphic novel. He said, yeah, I'm going to add about 10 more pages, um, but I'm going to exhume it and, and uh, uh, finish it up. And, and so that will be my next project. I have no idea how long it will take because I have to get my drawing chops back. But since most of it is penciled, it's going to be mostly a matter of going over it. And, well, what it would have been ink, now it's on the digital tablet, the Wacom's antique tablet, which cuts out a lot of stages. You draw right, you draw on the screen and, and there's, you know, your picture appears beneath your, your stylus. Um, uh, so I think by doing that, by basically tracing over my, my old work, the old pencil work, I will remember how to draw again. And uh, then, after that, uh, after I get my Nobel Prize for comics, which is, which is my next award, uh, <laughs> um, then I'm going to do new stories. I don't know what format exactly. I do want to have a, a website, and I might start putting some work on the website, and then that could eventually go into print as well. But I'm not sure. I do want to work in color, enough black and white. <laughs> I'm sure we look forward to all of that. Uh, Let's hope I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have time for some questions. If anybody wants to ask anything, right here. I thought I read in print recently about the possibility of a biography. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I never. I didn't read that. But there's no thought of you uh, offering your life story. I don't think so. I don't. I certainly, I've never heard about that. No. <laughs> He should write an autobiography. <laughs> well, Conan wrote the article in Quill and Choir, and maybe it was something about that. Yeah. If you want to find one of those, there's a, there's a, a condensed version in here. Okay, okay. Was it longer online still? No. Oh. No, it's just, no, it's just condensed Con of your life. A, condensed version of A condensed of version of your life. Yeah, I've been condensed. <laughs> Any other questions? That one right there? That I can draw. When you, when you start to draw again, you won't believe it. But you'll, you've had all this stuff in you all these years, and suddenly you'll be able to draw better than you ever could. Oh, I know what you mean. I've had that happen before. That and then you'll have to take your little novel and you'll say, oh, and you'll have to sort of integrate because all this time right. you've been getting better with that. You know, it's a weird thing. I've had the same thing happen. Well, I've, I, I've had that happen before, yeah, not for. A period of 25 years, but but yeah, I, I, I really. Right. Well, I think we keep we keep looking, not only at the world but other people's art too, and and learning, yeah. even though we are not conscious of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting I'll be able to draw like, like uh, Michelangelo, probably. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? Around, uh, Chester. So, the new book, uh, the new collection, uh -huh. is it from Wacom Antiques or is it scanned from the old comics? It's 98% from the original art. Oh, wow. There's a few, a, a few pages that, for one re reason or another, I didn't have the... The, the originals, or I couldn't find them. Uh, 
But um, we also worked very hard on the scans once, once they were done. At least I worked hard on them. I went over each one and touched up anything that had been damaged or deteriorated in some way. But uh, yeah, I kept all my originals because I've always had in mind that I was going to have a reprint. So now I'm going to sell them all off. Because now we have the, the digital scans of them, so I, you know now I can I can free up some space and charge thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody back there. Yeah. yeah. So changed a lot. So like, no kidding. Right. No, because I can't meet deadlines and I don't want to meet deadlines. I don't think so. It doesn't really appeal to me. Maybe at some point I might change my mind. Because the one thing I really liked about having a comic book, it was supposedly on a schedule, but it, I never, ever <laughs> hewed to the schedule. I, I couldn't have even if I'd wanted to. But um, the one thing I liked about it was the relatively immediate feedback. You know, you put out a comic book and then letters come in and and then you can print the letters and, and answer them in the, in print. And I, I like that business of, of having my, my readers, uh, you know, actually in, in communication with me. But other than that, I don't see any real reason to, <laughs> to want to do that. You know, the, the stories would have to be cut up into short segments or they have to have has to be short stories um, and sometimes there's an element of hurrying up too much I guess what I do what I did miss in this book is we, there's no color inside this book and I had really I experimented with color a lot in my covers for, the, for Neil the Horse because I've worked in print uh, printing and publishing all my life I, I, I worked as a um, pre-press technician and also as an art director for a number of years. Um, so I'm very fascinated by printing processes and what you can achieve through printing processes. And so I was playing with it just endlessly in the covers. And I, I, I would love to do more of that. But now that there's web comics and web, web publishing, I, I, can, I can put things out there in that way and probably get feedback pretty quickly and color of course is not a problem <laughs> you're welcome anybody else there time for one or two more if there's one no alright well if you'd like to read more about Catherine as somebody mentioned you can uh, read more about her in the current issue of Quill and Choir which is available page and panel or if you come to the Doug Wright Awards tonight you can get one for free oh it's available in the, in the store is yep that? oh that's mm -hmm. the page and panel list yes the store yep. yeah so, uh, right. Catherine, thank you so much for thank talking you, to us today. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you all for coming. Are you doing a signing or anything today? Are you um, yeah, and later on I'm supposed to be at the conundrum table signing, you know what time? signing books. I forget. It's in the, it's in the, Keep an eye on the conundrum It's, it's in the program, mm -hmm. that program book. I should have made note of that. Hmm. We're from 2 to 3. 2 to 3. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thanks for coming. Thank you, everybody. Aw, shucks. <laughs> <laughs>